Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. You look through the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it's a, it's a lot of books. It's 39 books of the Bible. A lot of people, you know, it, they look at it, they get a little intimidated by it. But the Old Testament really can be summed up fairly easily as to how it kind of chronologically goes. In Genesis, that's the first book. The first 11 chapters actually cover the vast majority of, of history. You see creation, and you see the fall of man, you see Noah's Ark, all of that takes place right there. But then beginning in Genesis 12, it kind of focuses on a specific family, which becomes a nation. It's the family of Abraham, which becomes the the Jewish nation or the Israelites. And we know a little bit, you follow along, they, they get taken captive or they become slaves in Egypt. And then a guy named Moses comes along and God works through Moses to deliver the Jewish people from Egypt. And they settle in the land of, of Canaan there and... And, uh, well, they have some judges that kind of rule for a little while, and the people don't really like having judges. They want a king, and so eventually God gives them a king. He gives them exactly what they want. It doesn't really work out the way they thought it would. The first king, Saul, is not a great guy. The second king, David, is a man after God's own heart. He's a good guy. And after him is another king named Solomon. And then after that, the nation splits into two, the north and the south. If you're from the United States, you know a little bit about the North and the South. They had, you know, civil wars. They had different things with the North and the South. And while there were a lot of kings and there's a lot of history during this time, that's also when we see a lot of the prophets. And if you read beginning with the book of Isaiah all the way through the last book of the Old Testament, there's a book called Malachi. You see those prophets. They write. They have lots of things that they do. There are a lot of other prophets that didn't write books that are in the Old Testament, guys like Elijah and Elisha. And one of the things almost all of these prophets have in common is that they would go to the people of God, the Jewish people, and call them to repentance. They would say, thus saith the Lord, and they would call out to the Jewish people to come back to the the promises of God given to them at the law when Moses was there, to return to being obedient, to cast off the idolatry, to, to come back to God. And the Old Testament is full of the fact that, for the most part, they didn't do this. There are a few spots here and there where they did, but they just didn't. And the prophets kept coming and kept coming. Even if you go to the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, I'm just going to read you the last two verses. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Ends on such a happy note, doesn't it there? Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And we see there in the Old Testament with these prophets over and over, they're making this call to the people, repent. And they have many, many years. Solomon, you know, after Solomon, when the prophets and major come on scene, there's about 800 years that they continually call out before Jesus comes. And as we get to John chapter 12, if you're not there, turn to John chapter 12. This kind of is the bookend to the opening of this book. 
In John chapter 12, at the the second part of verse 36, it says this, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Beginning next week, when we look at John chapter 13, the book takes an entirely different kind of track. It's now all about the disciples. But here in John chapter 12, at the very end, this is kind of, like I say, the book into the opening prologue where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all of that. And it really is Jesus' final outright outreach to the people. We're going to see his final words before he kind of says, all right, I'm folding it in before I go to the cross. And much like the prophets, who for 800 years they listened to and didn't pay any attention to, we're going to see here that, that Jesus has been speaking to them for three years, and for the most part, the vast majority didn't hear. And what we see is that what really matters in life, what is absolutely essentially important, a lot of them missed. And John wants to focus before, like I say, it turns to the disciples, it looks inward at the, the, the 12 that have been kind of on the periphery of this book. There's one last push to what really matters. And this final public call from Jesus to what really matters, we're going to look at three aspects of it this morning. And so I'm going to ask you in the honor of God's word to stand. I'm going to begin reading in verse 34. It's about where we ended last week. I'm going to go to the end of the chapter, so hang in there. So the crowd answered him and said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless... Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Lord, we thank you for this final bit of, of calling that you have in this book before uh, well, it comes to the crucifixion. And Lord, I pray this morning as those that hear your word this morning, Lord, those that may not have 
heeded your call that they would do, the, do so today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we look at this, what really matters, what's really important. We see first that we have kind of the final call to what really matters. I kind of, when I started in verse 34, I, I picked up a little bit in the midst of a conversation. If you've been following along week after week, you know, I go through the book of John. You saw that last week Jesus talked about there in verses 31 and 32 about the judgment of the world and being lifted up and drawing all people to himself. And so the people responded there in verse 34. It says, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, if you're paying very close attention, you notice that Jesus didn't say the Son of Man would be lifted up. He said, I will draw all men to myself. He doesn't really say much about the Son of Man unless you go all the way back to verse 23 where Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And they also, when these people talk about the Son of Man, they, they apparently were able to put together the idea that Jesus must be referring to himself this way. He's referring to himself as the Christ. But then they have this question. We, we've heard that the Christ remains forever. Now, there is no direct Old Testament passage that says that in, in just explicit terms, but there are bits and pieces of verses here and there that you can maybe get that idea and probably what it was is a lot of these people heard their rabbis and teachers and lead, leaders saying this type of thing about the Messiah. So they go to Jesus and they say, what you're saying doesn't, doesn't jive with everything else we've, we've heard. What you're explaining to us about yourself and God's methods and God's ways doesn't line up with what we think it should be. The truth is, everybody in history is just like the Jews here. They have their idea of how God should be. You do it. I do it. Hopefully it lines up with what the Word of God says. But there's always parts of us that when we first read something or see something, sometimes we scratch our head and go, ah, that doesn't seem right. And in our world today, we have a lot of people that, that come, you know, they, you'll talk to them about God and they'll have their ideas and thoughts. And when you start to talk to them about what the Bible says, they kind of want to dismiss it. Say, I don't, I don't, my God wouldn't be that way. What do you do about your God? But yes, that's the way a lot of people are. That's the way, and, and before we make too much fun, we can all fall into that category a little bit. But Jesus doesn't even really respond to what they say, does he? You know, what, what's their question? We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus doesn't even talk about the Son of Man. Instead, he talks about the light. This is his final public words. That's what John, this is what he wanted to capture, the essence of the final thing Jesus says to the grand crowds that are around him. And he talks about the light. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. John, as he, he takes this phrase or this speaking of Jesus, it's, it reminds us of what, how John opened this book. John uses the, the illustration of Jesus as light over and over. Jesus uses it. That's probably why John uses it. We see it here. You saw it back in chapter 11. It's in chapter 9. It's in chapter 8. It's in chapter 3. But the first place we see it is in John chapter 1, in the prologue. Just listen, this is in the fourth verse of the opening of this book. It says, In him was life, and life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John, as he's opening his gospel, he's preparing to tell the people who this Jesus is. Right there at the beginning, he talks about the light. And it's fitting because here in Jesus' final public words to the crowds, he compares himself to light. It was an illustration that he liked to use. And light is something that is, well, we all understand light. But I don't necessarily know in our culture today when we have electricity that we really get how important the idea of light and darkness was to people then. I mean, today, we can go outside at night and we have street lights, we have headlights on cars, you know, you see the skyscrapers, they're lit up, and if you go to a football game or whatever, they have big bright lights that shine down, you can play sports outside and all of that. We have so much light that we even have a term for it called light pollution that, you know, it's hard to see the, st- uh, the stars if you're in a city or anywhere near a town nowadays. But imagine going back 2,000 years ago to a time when there, none of that existed. When you would go outside at night when the sun would go down, and if it happened to be cloudy, it was pitch black pretty much everywhere. And people in that culture would have been very aware of where the sun was. Your whole day would have revolved around about where the sun was and making sure that you had everything taken care of before the sun went down. If you were out in the fields working in the fields, you would pay attention to say, hey, we got to get in. we got to take care of some of the afternoon chores before the sun went down. Especially if you were traveling. You had to make sure you were in a town, you were in the square or at an inn. You were, you were inside somewhere before the sun went down because otherwise you were free game for the robbers, animals, anything that could get you. And there was no, okay, go turn on a flashlight or, or whatever. This, it was the sun. And so you can imagine people from the time they were very little, it was it drilled into them to be aware of the encroaching darkness. Don't let the darkness overtake you, because if you're out after dark, and Jesus takes something that everybody would have understood, and he says, brings a spiritual component to himself, the light is among you for a little while longer. You can imagine when the sun starts to set, you know, it gets that bright orange, and it's about to go down, and you know it's going to be dark soon. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Because the one in the dark doesn't know where he's going. And when I think of that in the spiritual truth, Jesus, after three years of telling these people, the sun's going down. It's setting. I won't be here much longer. Come to the light. And I think of the spiritual truths, the, the application of this in, in two ways, really. One, the first one is just how many people I meet that they, they wait to come to Jesus until later in life. I meet people that grew up in church. You know, they didn't, they didn't really take, so to speak. You know, they were there, and then they hit 16 or 17, and, you know, they're gone. And then I see them later in 35, 40 years old, and, I, and they've, they've come back to, to God. You know, they've, they've gotten their life right, and they go, man, if only I hadn't waited, because I made some big mistakes from about 17 to 30. I, I just, you know, now that I'm on the, the north side of that age group, and I look at the young people, and I go, I wish I could just shake some sense into you about what's coming about the decisions that you're going to make, the things that are going to come into your life that will affect the rest of the way that you go. Come to the light while you can. 
How many people wander in the darkness in their teens and their 20s that just wish they hadn't? But more than even that is just come to the light before it's too late. Before your life here on earth ends. When I was in seminary, there was a, a verse that we had. We had to learn a lot of verses. And one of the verses that I had to memorize, and I'll, I swore I would remember it, and I'm trying right now to remember it because, you know, come on, you got it. It's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. He that is often reproved and refuses will suddenly be broken and beyond repair, reproof, or beyond coming back. And the whole idea behind that verse is, listen, there are those that continually get warnings about their behavior. They continually get somebody telling them, listen, you got to watch what you're doing. you got to repent. you got to turn. you got to come back. But many people reject it over and over and over. And the proverb, the principle behind that is there will come a day where God will say, enough's enough. It's over. And there's such a, a, a scariness to the last part of that verse, beyond repair. Basically, beyond, there's, not, there's no hope. That everyone in this room is, is walking towards the end. They're getting closer to the edge, and the edge is going to get there for everybody. And Jesus, this, this last final call, he's, he's reaching out. They're worrying about, well, the Son of Man, the Son of God, this. And, and he's come to the light while you still have a chance. And so before, like I said, in chapter 13, Jesus brings his disciples in and begins to pour into them. But to the rest of the crowds, this, this call, and it's the call to all of us. This is a, a room on a Sunday morning full of a lot of people who are professed believers. I believe that, but there's a lot of folks here. There's some that, well, my call is to you, is to come to the light. As we go, though, then John, as it switches there in verse 36, it says there, Jesus had said these things. He departed and hid himself from there. And then John has a little section of theology here, and this is a, an important little part. I had this as a, as a point in my sermon, the frustrating rejection of what really matters. In verse 36, after he says that Jesus had said these things and departed, verse 37 kind of sets up the next section. He says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Now, to understand that little verse, you have to understand that John wrote this gospel probably 40 to 50 years after Jesus rose from the dead. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had been in circulation for quite a while. Many of the letters that you read, you know, Romans and Corinthians and some of those, they had all been circulated. The church had been around for a while by the time John wrote this gospel. And so as John writes this gospel, probably you know, several decades after Jesus rose from the dead, probably one of the things, and we see this with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, is, is this question of the Jewish people who had the Old Testament law, they had every prophecy that was written down, they had all of these things, they had Jesus for three years performing all of these great miracles, why didn't they believe? Why did so many reject, even after Jesus rose from the dead? Why did so many Jewish people not come to faith? That's the thing. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe him. Why? And this little section of Scripture is John, I think, kind of inserting his theological reason why. And he really has two things that we look at, the, the divine aspect and the human aspect. And he starts with the divine aspect, and it's, 
Really, it's because it's part of God's plan that they wouldn't believe. Verse 38, so that this word spoken by the prophet, this prophecy, would be fulfilled. And he quotes two prophecies, both from Isaiah. The first one, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is what's called the servant, or the suffering servant passage. It's a prophecy about Jesus. It's, it's a very, if you ever have some time, one of the best chapters of the Old Testament to ever look at is Isaiah 53. Because Jewish people have never been able to explain it outside of a person. And it's predicting Jesus Christ. And it's this picture of this suffering, suffering servant. Somebody that would not be an attractive person for people to follow. It would be a criminal being killed, basically. And so this Lord who has believed this and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed, it's the idea that Jesus is not an attractive person as the world looks at it and saying he's a powerful guy going to lead us to great victory. That's, that's part of this prophecy. And then in verse 39, the second one, he says, therefore they could not believe, and that probably, if you're really paying attention this morning, jumps out. What do you mean they couldn't believe? They could not believe. And he quotes another passage, this from Isaiah chapter 6. He's blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. And then verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What does it mean? Did Isaiah see Jesus in a way? But it says, therefore, they could not believe him. Well, that, that kind of, what does it mean? They couldn't believe him, and how does this prophecy play into that? Well, I think it has to do with how you see how John copied this from the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, and if you look at Isaiah chapter 6, it's, he, he paraphrases it. He doesn't directly quote it. And he really focuses on first, he has blinded their eyes and then hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. But if you look at the actual passage in Isaiah, he starts with the heart, then he goes to the ears, then he gets to the eyes. John starts with the eyes, goes to the heart, and doesn't even mention the ears. And I think that has a lot to do with the, how much John, the theology of his book, talks about seeing and blindness. And we talk about physical seeing and physical blindness. John chapter 9, he heals a blind guy and all of that. But there's a lot in here about seeing and how seeing should go to the heart and penetrate to the heart to lead people to Christ. But what did he say back there in verse 37? Though he had done so many signs, they had seen so much, they still didn't believe. It didn't penetrate their heart. And Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus. Just as Isaiah would look at the people in the Old Testament and they had what they needed to see, but it still didn't penetrate their hearts, he saw ahead to eventually the greatest revelation of God here on earth, Jesus Christ. The people would see it and they still didn't believe. And so John recognizes this is part of the plan of God. We see this, this, this hardening that when Jesus is there, some people believe, some don't. A guy, I read this, I thought this was interesting. A guy by the name of Origen, one of the early church fathers, said this, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same Christ that melts the hearts of some people to follow him hardens others. All of us, if you've ever read through Exodus, and you, you read about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, when, the prof, or, or when, when all of those uh, plagues were taking place, when God was calling him to let his people go, ten different times it said Pharaoh hardened his heart. And ten different times it said God hardened his heart. And one of the things that we pull out of this from this prophecy is John examined this and he was scratching his head. Why don't they believe? It's because it's part of God's plan. 
One final point on this, 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 what he translates here in Isaiah, or from Isaiah chapter 6, it actually appears five times in the New Testament. What's here in verse 40? Four of them are in the Gospels. And it's Jesus referring to the, the same type of thing he refers here, that these people would see and they wouldn't believe. But the fifth time is actually at the end of the book of Acts. It's the very end of Acts. And it says this, chapter 28, verse 26. This is the, the, the direct quote of Isaiah. Go to the people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Part of God's plan, the hardening of Israel, the hardening of, of their hearts to the message of Christ, is so that that message would then go to us. And in a way that's hard for me to, to really expand and get my, my brain wrapped around it, this is the plan that God had. And as John and as Paul and as people look and examine that, they say, well, this, this, is, this is the conclusion they come to. This is the divine plan. But John doesn't stop there in his little theological break here. In verses 42 and 43, he also talks about the human component. Nevertheless, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they, this is telling, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in addition to why they rejected in this Old Testament, this is the plan of God, it's also the human aspect of, well, we just, we like people more than we like God. It's interesting because John throughout this book has said how much the... Uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders, for the most part, couldn't stand Jesus. But here he says, but some of them believed. But they wouldn't confess. They wouldn't confess because they, they loved humanity. They loved the praise they get from people more than what they get from God. And this brings up a big point about these opening 12 chapters. Is John talks a lot about people that believe in Jesus, and then they kind of fade away or this or that. And, and it brings that question to us, what is, what is true belief? appropriating the faith. Because the question would be, do these, are these religious leaders, is it salvation that we're talking about here? I don't believe so. I believe that's the point John is trying to make here. You see, let me give you an illustration to try and explain faith, the biblical idea of faith. It's not just an intellectual assent. It, it's more than that. When I was at my last church, I uh, decided to plant a garden in my backyard at my house. A big garden. And I grew lots of vegetables. I grew butternut squash. I grew corn. The squirrels ate most of it, but I still grew it, and they got fat off of the food that I would grow, and I, I grew to hate squirrels and all of that. But I grew things like green beans. And I grew like six rows of green beans. So I had more green beans than you knew what to do with. And so I decided I was going to can green beans. Does anybody can in here? Okay, a few people can. It's a dumb name. You put them in jars, not cans. But anyway, you get I, to do some of the things that you grow, you can put them in just boiling water. But certain vegetables and beans are one of them. You have to put them in a pressure canner. So I went out and bought myself a pressure canner, and I got the directions out, and I read through the directions. And really what you do is you put about this much water in the bottom of a pressure canner and put your jars in there with the lids on. And you put this lid on the top, and it's like, you know, a submarine. you got to lock the lid in there. 
So I turn it on and put the heat on the stove on high. And the idea is the water, as it gets hot, it starts to boil. And when water boils, it creates steam, which is pressure. Hence the name pressure canner. And then what it does is it has to get to a certain level, and there's this little gadget you put on the top. There's a little hole in the top, and the steam tries to get out, and it'll wiggle it around like this. And once that starts happening, you know you have enough pressure. And I read through all of the directions like, okay. So I do all of this, and I turn it on, and the thing was, uh, this is the big mistake I made. I also Googled it. I, I read, watched YouTube videos, and you can, like, watch pressure canner fails. And once you read the pressure, you go, oh, it's not like it just, you know, you spill some stuff or whatever. Like, the, if it fails, the thing can go through your roof. I mean, through the ceiling, through the next floor, through the roof. It'll destroy your kitchen. I mean, you can, if you want fun, you can do this. I mean, this is what those guys at the Boston Marathon, they used a pressure canner. And so, you know, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm trying it, and it's doing its thing, and it's loud, making all this noise. And I'm like, kids, back up, back up, you know, get out of the room. And it's a little freaky because that little thing's spinning around, but I did it. Now, here's the thing. When I first got the directions out and read it, I believed what the directions said. But if I had stopped there because I was scared of whatever, the pressure can on all of this, I wouldn't really have appropriated that belief. It became real when I actually went ahead and did what the direction said. And faith, this is where you get the connection of faith and works. Faith, the way we know we genuinely have faith is it changes us. We do something. Now, the doing is not the faith, but that is the result of faith. I saw what the direction said, and it caused me to go do something. And why this is so important in our culture today is because we have very little persecution that we face. That doesn't really wean out the people that say, well, I want to believe in Jesus, and I'm, I'm, but I'm, I wouldn't say that because I might get killed or whatever. That doesn't really happen in the United States. You can say you follow Jesus and face virtually no persecution in our culture. And so because of that, what you end up having is a lot of people that are like these folks, they'll say it, but they don't really believe it. And the way you can tell is because nothing's changed. It's like saying, I believe the pressure canner thing, but I, I don't, I'm not going to do it because I really think it's going to blow up. Well, then I don't believe the directions, do I? And how many people, yeah, I really believe all these things that Jesus said about himself, but at the end of the day, I'm not, I don't really believe it because, well, it's never changed anything about my life. And so John, as, as Jesus there made his final, you know, come to the light there in verse 34 and 35 and 36, and then he says Jesus kind of stepped back. But before he goes and talks about Jesus talking to the disciples, he deals with this, this theological issue. Why don't people believe? And he comes away from this because it's part of the plan of God and it's partially, it, they reject it. They love the praise of people. They're more concerned about this world and what they can achieve in this world than what God's word says. And what it shows us is the truth, the age-old thing that we talked about, anybody that thinks theology in a church for any length of time, the sovereignty of God, the free will, or the responsibility of man. And it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And John and Paul and Peter and James and all of those that address this issue, and most all of them do in some capacity, said, listen, it's, it's, it's both. This is why these, these, these great Champions of the faith spent a tremendous amount of time in prayer because they knew it was the sovereign work of God in people's lives. They would pray. They would fast. 
They would do all of these things. They would cry out to God for him to do a great work. But they also knew it was their responsibility to go and share the gospel, to do whatever they could to take the gospel to whoever needed to hear it. They didn't fight over this, that, and the other. They just said, it's both. Get on your knees and get on your feet. And so as a church, that's what we do. That's why I ask you before the, the, the sermon time to pray, to pray for the people. And when you leave here, go find them. And then it's also why we will do more outreach, why we send missionaries to other parts of the world. And we pray for those missionaries. And John knew that when he wrote this. Then you get to the last part, the final conclusion to what really matters. This is the last thing John has to say on it before it switches to him with Jesus and his disciples. Now, it starts out, Jesus cried out, which kind of seems contradictory to Jesus back in verse 36. He hid himself from them. I don't necessarily think Jesus cried out like he went out in the front porch and threw open the, the, everybody, and shouted this out. I think this is more or less, this is just Jesus, what he, it's a summary of everything he has said up to this point, is what he has told people. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. He opens with this connection of himself and the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, if you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you go to verse 49, just a couple of verses later, he, he reemphasizes this again. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. I know that this is his commandment. His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, you see this if you see me, you see the Father. You believe in me, you believe the Father. Now, do you remember how this book began? Let me read you the very beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John, as he opened this gospel, one of the great prologues, in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about God and he's talking about Jesus. And he uses that word, word, to talk to Jesus, that when you, you hear somebody speak, it's like you, it's them. He's saying God the Father and Jesus are so closely connected. If you, if you see one, you see the other. That's how Jesus describes his public ministry. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. That is such an essential point in our culture. That's becoming more pluralistic. That just means lots of different religions, lots of different types of people, which is great. That's fine. But it doesn't mean we water down the gospel to try and acquiesce to people that believe other things. Because what Jesus is saying here is, is, is to know God, you have to know me. And to know me is to know God. But to know something else isn't. We have a lot of people that talk about, you know, you're, you're, as long as you sincerely believe what it is that you should believe, then that's what matters. Well, sincerely believing something, who cares? I could sincerely believe I walk off the edge of this and I won't go to the ground. Does that matter that I sincerely believe that? Obviously not. I would go down to the ground. It matters what you believe. And you hear a lot of, I kind of call it the Oprah Winfrey view of it, you know, just believe the light you have been given. You ever hear that or something close to that? If you ever hear somebody says, just believe the light that you have been given, believe what, what you believe is right, ask them this question. Ask them if they believe the hijackers from September 11th have their 72 virgins. Ask them if they're believing in or living in paradise for all eternity now. 
Because if it's really just follow the light you have, then you'd have to say yes. Adolf Hitler, he's living it up because he followed the light he had. It's the stupidest thing in the world to say that, but it's popular today. What Jesus said is not follow the light that you have, follow the light. I am the light is what Jesus said going all the way back to the beginning. He is with the Father. He and the Father are one. And then right there in the middle of this, after he says that he's with the Father, he says, I've come into the world as the light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. There's that call again to light and darkness. And then there's two types of people really he describes here that don't come to the light. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, and then in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And he goes on to describe kind of their fate, and it's very similar. And he's not there to judge, and we've gone over that before in the other sections where he talks about it. But he talks about those that hear his words and don't keep them, and those that just flat out reject them. As I mentioned before, this is a Sunday morning service in a church in the south in the United States. There's probably not that many of you that would just flat out reject the words of Jesus. Maybe. But probably not that many. But that other one, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, that goes back to the Pharisees that believed, but they, they would not confess them. It's those that year in, year out, decade in, decade out, sit, maybe sit in a church service, they hear the words of Jesus, but it never penetrates. They never really confess it. You may have been one of those that was born and raised in a church because that's where your parents brought you. You stuck with it because, well, you made some friends and it became a good routine on Sunday morning. But have you ever really come to the light? Jesus, after this, will sit down with his disciples and begin to spend some time with them. But here, before it all ends, he wanted to talk about what really matters. As many of you know, Bob Martin passed away a couple of days ago. And I got a chance to meet him over the past two years. And it wasn't long after I got here that I first got a call from some other folks, and I, I talked to Carol, that he had gone to the, the doctor and had gotten kind of the diagnosis that there wasn't much more that they could do. Remember, was, this is actually the two-year anniversary of my first Sunday here, and it wasn't long after I was here that, that that took place. And I remember talking to Carol a little. I saw Bob the next Sunday. And he was over there at the place where he always greets, and he had a big old smile on his face. Hey! And he shook my hand or whatever. And here's a guy who, who knew that time here on earth was, was limited. But you could tell talking to him, and the times when I would see him down here, he knew what really mattered. And while your life here on earth, it comes and it does go. Because of Christ, because of what he's done, because of the light, we know what really matters. And we can see people that show us and direct us to that truth. So come to the light. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Cornerstone Bible Fellowship. Please join us for our full worship service this coming Sunday at 10 a.m. Also, you may listen to any past sermon by going to cbf.us slash sermons and clicking on the link to past sermons.